Hi friends, this is Will Dyer, the pastor here at the First Baptist Church of Augusta. Welcome to our podcast. I hope the message that you are about to hear will give you some joy in your day. But more than that, I hope that this message will connect you to Jesus. The mission of our church is to connect people to Jesus Christ in a community of faith. And it is my greatest hope that the message you are about to hear will better connect you with Jesus and His way in the world. It is wonderful to be in worship with you today here at First Baptist Church, to have the chance just briefly to thank you and your congregation for your wonderful partnership and ministry with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Through your prayers, through your leadership, through your generosity, and through all of your other forms of involvement, you are joined with more than a thousand other congregations all over the United States who come together for a mission in the world that none of us could do on our own. But together we send missionaries to 20 countries. Together we provide scholarship support for students, women and men alike, whom God has called to the gospel ministry. Together we provide ministries of support for pastors and congregational leaders in the dream that God still needs congregations in this moment to thrive. Because of your generosity, because of your prayers, because of your commitment, this ministry is possible and prepares to enter our fourth decade of fellowship and mission together. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, if you've been in a room like this on a day like this before, that is to say when a leader of a denomination comes to preach, you probably have a fear that I think I should voice and a hope at the same time. You have a fear that you're settling in for a denominational infomercial, and you have a hope that it won't last much more than 20 minutes. Well, it could be that when this is over, you hope your fear had come true. But I want you to know that I've come today to invite you to listen with me to this passage from the third chapter of John's Gospel and see how the Holy Spirit might speak to us today through this story which shall be familiar to some of us and perhaps new to others. But let's each listen to these verses with ears of faith as though we're listening for the very first time. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wills. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. 
So it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, that is, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. This morning we watch as Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And if you're at all like me, you are at first at risk of suspecting this is a really big deal. After all, think who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. That is to say, he is a seriously trained theologian. He didn't just go to synagogue school. He went on for further theological education, and he rose through the ranks of the Jewish community in the first century to the point that he's not only a seriously trained theologian, but he has become a leader of the Jews. You see, in the first century, there was no such thing as the separation of synagogue and state, at least when it came to the way the Jews and the Romans coexisted around Jerusalem. They negotiated this little deal that allowed the Jewish people, namely their religious leaders, to have governance over most things involving the welfare of Jewish people, which meant that the Jewish religious leaders also functioned in 99% of the circumstances as Jewish political leaders. So when Nicodemus comes to see Jesus, this looks like a really important moment, especially this early in Jesus' ministry, because here comes not only a highly trained theologian, but a widely respected community leader, and he wants to come to Jesus. Well, before we get too impressed, before we break out in celebration, I want to encourage you to notice, first of all, when Nicodemus comes. Nicodemus, the text says, comes to Jesus by night. That is to say, Nicodemus comes under the cover of darkness. Nicodemus comes at a time when most folks have already retired to their dwellings for the evening. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at a time when most people will never know that he's made the visit. You see, they didn't have Facebook then. No one would take a selfie and post it. 
It's widely speculated that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night because he, as a religious and political leader, does not want to take the risk of being seen with Jesus. It's safer. It's more secure. It's a lot less risky for Nicodemus to come see Jesus at night. Consider this as well. Consider the ways in which the Gospel of John talks about night and darkness in other places. Consider the role darkness plays in the Gospel of John. Darkness represents evil. Darkness tries to put out the light. Later in John chapter 3, the, the narrator records that Jesus says after Nicodemus is passed off the scene, that all who do evil are drawn to the darkness instead of the light. And perhaps the best example of this in John's Gospel is on that Maundy Thursday night when Judas Iscariot goes out to betray Jesus. Do you, do you notice the dramatic way in John 13 that the narrator describes that moment? The Gospel writer says, you see, that when Judas went out, it was night. It was dark. It was the hour of darkness, Jesus would say. And so the fact that much earlier in the gospel, some ten chapters earlier, the writer of the gospel of John goes out of his way to tell us that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night should at least slow down our desire to organize a celebration about this moment. And it instead should cause us to ask ourselves the question, is this really the right time for a person to come to Jesus? But while you ponder that question, I want to invite you also to notice how Nicodemus comes, or with what spirit he comes, or what countenance he comes. Nicodemus comes, and in every way he gives the impression that he believes he is in charge of the encounter with Jesus. We listen to him talk and we quickly discover that what he's trying to do is fit Jesus neatly within the way he already sees the world. To make Jesus be a, a nice part of his balanced worldview, he says, Teacher, we know, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God because no one can do the signs that you do apart from the presence of God. In other words, congratulations, Jesus. You fit in our system. I'll call you a rabbi because you're a good teacher. You know, you're playing by our rules. No one could do the signs that you do apart from the presence of God. See how neatly you fit into our system, how well you conform to our world. You, you fit real well. So we see Nicodemus putting himself in a place where he is defining not just how he approaches Jesus or when he approaches Jesus, but he's trying to define the very terms of the encounter, like he's in charge. Like he already knows most of what there is to know, and Jesus can just be placed in it comfortably without disrupting anything else. Of course, you see what happens. 
What happens is what always happens when we try to fit Jesus into a system we've already constructed as though he'll do no damage to it. Nicodemus does not have an adequate understanding of Jesus. He just calls him a teacher come from God. Sisters and brothers in Christ, at best, that is an inadequate understatement. If all Jesus is, is a teacher come from God, it begs the question, why did we get up on time change weekend and come to church? If all Jesus is, is a well-credentialed teacher with a divine, I mean, that sounds like the way we would talk about any ordinary human being if we were going to recommend them to be ordained to the gospel ministry. You know, there's some evidence in this person's life of the presence of God. There's some evidence in this person's life of the work of God. There's some evidence in this person's life that their teaching is reliable. If that's all we've got for Jesus, we should stop now. But that's what happens every time we begin with Jesus as though we're in control and he's going to fit neatly into our worlds, we inevitably find ourselves inadequately describing Jesus at best or misrepresenting Jesus completely at worst. When you watch when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and you watch how Nicodemus comes to Jesus, I want to suggest to you this morning, you start to notice some unmistakable habits of the heart or longings of the heart. Our hearts naturally long for safety and security. Isn't that the longing we see when Nicodemus comes at night? Our hearts long for control. Isn't that what we see Nicodemus doing as he approaches Jesus and tries to set all the terms for the encounter? For those of us whose lives are at least someday successful and predictable and balanced, don't we have a hunger for Jesus not to disrupt the good thing we have going on? There's some unmistakable longings of the heart for security and safety and predictability and familiarity that are oozing through Nicodemus's character. But the question we have to ask ourselves are those habits of the heart that really lead us to Jesus. Are there things that we can protect? Are those habits of the heart things we can protect if we're really going to be in relationship with Jesus? So notice how Jesus responds to Nicodemus. He does not say, thank you so much for coming to see me. Your endorsement means a lot. We might can rack this thing up if we work together. He does not say, it really means a lot to my low self-esteem to hear you speak about me in such a complimentary way. He doesn't even say thank you. Instead, he makes a statement to Nicodemus that he repeats several times over because Nicodemus is struggling to hear it. That can at best be described as a challenge and might most accurately be described as a confrontation. 
Nicodemus, very truly I say to you, you cannot see the kingdom of God without being born again from above. So the Greek word is uh, anathen. I learned this in college and I still remember. The Greek word is anathen. And it can equally accurately be translated again or from above. And if you're asking which is correct, you're asking the wrong question. Because it's entirely possible for Jesus to have both meanings in mind. Nicodemus, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, if you're going to live the life God really desires for you, you're going to have to be born again from above. You're going to have to be born of water and spirit. You're not going to see the kingdom of God by fitting me into something you've already got worked out. No, you're going to have to start all over at the very beginning. And you're not going to see the kingdom of God if you think you're in control. Because one of the most profound truths about being born is you are absolutely not. The wind blows where it will, Jesus says. You, you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. And that's just how it is when you're born again from above. You're not in control. There's no safety. There's no predictability. There's no security. Instead, this reality that you cannot wrap your words around, this love you cannot wrap your mind around, breaks loose in your life and shakes the foundations of your life and causes you to stagger and search and long and lurch for a whole new way of living that you have to tiptoe into you before you can walk and you have to walk before you can run and you have to run before you can ever soar up on wings like mighty eagles. To be born again from above is to be drawn into a world you could not define or control or create and find your place first vulnerably in it. So anyone who has ever had kids knows that in bearing children all control is lost. I think one of the meanest tricks, and if, there, if there's anybody here who works for uh, an OBGYN practice, I apologize in advance. But I want to say to you, as a parent and as a pastor, I have developed the theory that one of the cruelest things the medical community does to parents expecting their first child is they ask the following question. Would you come in so we can make a birth plan? As though you can plan what's going to happen. And as though you're going to be in control of hardly anything else that happens after that. But hey, let's get out our piece of paper and let's make our plan. The thing about birth is you can't plan it. You can't set the terms for the encounter. You can't decide exactly when it's going to happen. You can't predict how it's going to change your life. But anybody who tells you it's not going to, you need to pray for. The wind blows where it will. That's how it is when you're born again 
from above. This life you cannot describe, this love you cannot comprehend, this mission that is greater than any agenda you can name overtakes you and draws you in and you try to find your place. That's how it is, Nicodemus. That's how you get into this. Not safely, not predictably, not in control. You've got to surrender those heart habits that long for security and control, and you have to surrender. You have to trust. You have to get caught up in something that you cannot describe. I told Will between services that in my experience, the more that I have taught and preached this text from John 3, and the more I have come to approach it in the way I am this morning, I can hardly remember a time when I preached it or taught it in a Bible study when someone didn't want to speak a word in defense of Nicodemus. And I developed a theory about that too. Because, see, I was once one of Nicodemus's lawyers. I was once one of Nicodemus's advocates. And what I've learned along the way is I was drawn to advocate for Nicodemus because I could resonate with his desire. I naturally, as the oldest born of my parents, um, just be honest, I kind of like to be in control. <laughs> then I became a Baptist preacher. How about that? I like safety. I like predictability. I like to know how things are going to turn out. I get Nicodemus' desire to come from a place of security and predictability. I, I get what it means to try to get Jesus to fit into a system I have already built, to live life as though Jesus complements the rest of my life or as some part of a, a balanced holy diet that someone has constructed. Or if I could just add, add Jesus, things would be even better. But Jesus challenges me too. Jesus confronts me too. He says, no, 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 no. Let's start at the very, very beginning. You have to be born again from above. You've got to be drawn into a world you can neither describe nor control. And it makes you start all over again in a whole new life. I think the first time that holy wind really blew into my life that I can remember, I was in middle school. Now, I told the group earlier this morning that I felt a need to confess, as I think many of you could confess, uh, I went to middle school in the last century. I went to middle school in another world, but I didn't enjoy it very much. And even people who go to middle school in this century who I've met don't seem to enjoy it very much. It's an awkward, unpredictable, frustrating time of life. Back when I was in middle school, it was in a time in American Christian history in the American South when people would actually go to church three times a week. 
There are people in my home church, First Baptist Winston-Salem, who went to church, get this y'all, on Sunday morning and Sunday night. And back in those days, um, the, the same pastor would preach both of those services, and they'd be different sermons. One had been prepared for days and days. One was written that afternoon, I think. <laughs> Can't prove it. I was just a, a cynical middle, middle school student watching it all. The sanctuary choir would do something marvelous on Sunday morning, like these folks did today. But you know who was the service choir on Sunday night? The youth choir. Well, that was a problem at my home church because the youth choir, even in the late 70s and early 80s, had essentially gone out of business. So the church called a new minister of music circa 1981, and one of his jobs was to rebuild the youth choir. Well, that meant he had to do some hard negotiating because he had to convince middle and high school guys that we would rather come to youth choir practice on Sunday afternoon than stay home and watch the NFL games. That was a hard bargain to drive even in the late middle part of the last century. So we had to negotiate. He said, I tell you what, if you all commit to youth choir and you'll come every week and you'll sing in the Sunday night service, then after you actually learn to sing, I'll take you on a choir tour. Well, <laughs> he hadn't heard us sing when he made the promise, which is probably good for us. See, back in, the, in that part of the last century, people didn't travel nearly as much as we do now. So the opportunity to go to New York and Connecticut and exotic places like that on a choir tour, that was a serious negotiating ship. So we all signed up. See, I, I grew up in the last century. And um, I don't know how to put this any other way, but honestly, we were really bad. Um, Ryan, we couldn't sing. And there wasn't much help for us. We also didn't really know how to act out in public. So that put the minister of music um, in a really tough spot because he had agreed, he'd arranged this tour for us in upstate New York and Connecticut. Now, don't get me wrong. We were not singing at Madison Square Garden. We were singing in small little congregations that would worship 20 or 30 people. And we would go sing our songs. About halfway through that choir tour, our behavior was so inadequate that they told us if we didn't get our act together, we were going home early. But we kept on singing songs in church services every night. The last night of that choir tour, we were singing in a little church in a town called Tallinn, Connecticut. And our youth choir of 50 or 60, we had the congregation doubled. There were 30 in the congregation, 50 or 60 of us on the stage, and we did our thing with our usual skill and expertise, which means it was bad. And at the end of the service, the pastor came and stood in front of the congregation and said, would anyone in the congregation like to say anything to this choir? We all braced because y'all, they hadn't clapped. And a lady sitting on the second or third row raised her hand and said, yes, there's something I'd like to say to this choir. And then we braced it even more. But I promised before God that what she said next was this, and almost four decades later, I can still hear it. 
I'd like to say to this choir that I have had a really hard year. This year, my husband died of cancer. Last month, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I started to wonder if the love of God was real. And then I heard you sing that song, God's love is like a mighty river flowing free. And I knew it had to be true. Pastor pronounced the benediction. Congregation scattered. We stood on the stage in a stunned silence and then sat where we were while our youth minister and our music minister tried to explain to us what exactly had just happened. What exactly had just happened was that the wind had blown where it will. Love had broken out in a way we could neither control nor prevent. The gospel had been proclaimed through broken vessels. God's love flowing free, recklessly, relentlessly, irresistibly, beautifully, compellingly in such a way that lives were changed and people were brought to a new awareness of the gospel. And I think what was happening as we were first standing and then sitting on that church stage was all of a sudden it was as though we could hear Jesus say, I'm telling you, you got to start all over. you got to be born again from above. The wind blows where it wills. You can't control it. You can't prevent it. You can't can't stand in the way of it, but you can step into it and see what happens. You can surrender. You can surrender. I've always wondered what happened to Nicodemus. It's easier to speculate him than to talk about us, right? We see Nicodemus two other times in the Gospel of John. He shows up when the Pharisees are trying to strategize about their legal strategy for getting rid of Jesus. And Nicodemus offers Jesus a really rousing endorsement. He says, you know, we should at least give him a fair trial. <laughs> Not exactly an endorsement. And then on Good Friday, when all the dust settles and the water and the blood have come out of Jesus' body and the coroner has left, and everyone else is left. Who shows up? Nicodemus, the funeral director, with his pal Joseph of Arimathea, to bury Jesus, to shove a stone in front of the tomb, and to make absolutely certain that Jesus stayed in the pre-existing categories. If you want to know how that turned out, um, come here April 12th before you go to the final round. Enough about Nicodemus. We'll never know if he ever surrendered. If he ever traded in those destructive heart habits for ones that were more holy. What about us? What about you? What about me? Ever since that day in Connecticut, I've been trying to figure out what it means to really surrender. To really be born again and again from above and to surrender to that wind that blows. You know, it's kind of weird. But that same summer, 
the wind overpowered us in Connecticut. About the same time, I think I heard for the very first time that old Baptist hymn, All to Jesus I Surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Sisters and brothers in Christ, as best I read the gospel, Nicodemus wasn't quite ready to sing that song yet. Are you? Amen. So many of us want to fit Jesus into our pre-existing categories. And the question for us today is, will you let the wind blow where it will? Will you let the wind of God blow fresh in your life so that you might live well and full in the world? Are you ready to surrender all to Jesus?